Over the last few weeks, we've talked about um, the first thing was the good news, bad news, is that we can't save ourselves, and that's good news. Then we talked about how God intervenes in our life, and God does. We couldn't be a Christian apart from God. There's no way in the world that you and I are smart enough, clever enough uh, to, to figure it out on our own. We needed help. Uh, we didn't just need help with people who had skin on them. Uh, uh, we, we needed help from for, for the one who died for us and died on the cross for us. We needed a holy presence of God help. God intervened in our life. God took us when we were spiritually dead. He, he, he made us hunger for something that was truth. And, and we've, we've grappled with that truth. And then we trusted that which we knew to be truth in our life. We realized what God had done. That, that we are redeemed. Not by perishable things like silver or gold. But by the precious blood of the Lamb. So last week we talked about that redemption. How that he purchased us. That, that he was the one who paid the price for our freedom. Um, you know, our mommy and daddy may have picked us up and drug us to church. Or, or somebody may have coerced us and bent our arm enough that we went to church. But nobody can get us to Jesus. But Jesus. And he redeemed us. He redeemed us. He intervened in our life. He showed us what he's done for us. We heard the message of truth. And the message of truth resonated with our life. Because faith comes by hearing. And hearing comes by the word of God. We heard it. And it, man, it settled it. We knew right then and there that we, we believe. We're God's child. We're God's children. And we're going to live the rest of our life as one. We're not just going to trust him to get us through the week or through the night. We're going to trust him to get us through this life. Today's passage, we're going to talk about this, this beautiful spirit of God that brings about this life. You know, the truth be known, we, we, uh, we are people that are, are habit-forming people. And old habits die real hard. Even when it comes to uh, what we know about Christianity. See, we used to equate Christianity with just going to church. That's how it worked, right? <laughs> Go to church, must be a Christian. You know, set in Sunday school. Oh, it must be a Christian. I own a Bible and it's got my name embossed on the front of it. I really must be a Christian. I've got a baptismal certificate that somebody gave me along the way. I don't really know what that was about, but I therefore must be a Christian. And what happens in that is that that's the habitual side of maybe the downside of sometimes of convoluting the truth about what Christianity is all about. Do I believe that you need to go to church if you're a Christian? Absolutely. Do I believe that you need to read the Bible if you're a Christian? Absolutely. Do I believe that you should follow the Lord in believer's baptism and make a declaration of your faith that you belong to Christ publicly? Absolutely, I do. But I think every one of those things happen after we become a Christian. It's not to become a Christian. It is what happens after we become Christian. And even though that's 
old habits. Sometimes that's the way we, we're programmed to think that's what a Christian is. Actually, a Christian, if you want to start thinking, cultivating a, a brand new habit from this day forward, start thinking like this. The Holy Spirit of God has done all the heavy lifting in my life. God has done this. And everything that I do from that moment forward is because of what God has done here. I'm not doing it to get God to love me. I'm doing it because I've got the love of God in me. And my life has changed by that, right? So that's where we are in Ephesians. Recognizing that, that, that our salvation is completely, totally purchased by the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 8 and 9, we'll look at it in just a moment. But I, I want you to think about something. When, when Paul comes to that end of Ephesians 2, he says that we are God's dwelling place. That's what he tells us. That, that, that we're the dwelling place of God. God is doing something so amazing in our life. He says that, that in him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling place. God is putting us and building us to be the dwelling place of God. That God dwells within us. The dwelling place of God. God don't dwell in empty building. God don't dwell in carpet and pews. God dwells in people's lives. And when we ponder the significance of that, we should ponder this very fact that, that the only way God can dwell in us is that the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence in our life. Because apart from God, we are dead in our sins. And can I tell you, dead people can't do nothing. People that are dead in sins are dead in sins. Dead people can't, can't do anything about their deadness. Dead people are dead. When God redeems us, then God is redeeming us out of that deadness and he's given us life. And when he gives us life, he says, I'm going to be that dwelling place. You're going to, I'm going to dwell in your life. And this is the question, really, is that when you look back over your Christian pilgrimage, how has it been Christ dwelling in you? What is different about you now than it was a year ago? If Christ is, is, is Christ dwelling in you, changing you? See, that's what needs to happen in our life. That's what the whole idea of regeneration is, is that God does something so amazing in our life that God does it. And he does it completely and totally. So there's a couple of verses I want you to listen to. First of all, Jesus said, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody can come to the Father unless they come through me. Right? That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, there's no way in the world that, that anybody can get to the Father unless they come to me. He said, I am all of the things that you need in life. I'm the way. There, without me, there's no going. I'm the truth. Without me, there's no knowing. I'm the life. There, without me, there's no living. He said, I'm all of those things. I'm everything for you. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That's what Jesus said. And then Paul said, he says, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is God's gift 
not from words so that no one can boast. Paul's telling us right there that, that, that we are saved by grace, the grace of God through faith, faith in God. Paul says that's how we are saved, by God's grace. God intervenes in our life. God pours out his grace in our life. And then from the very moment that he pours out his, his, his grace in our life, then our eyes begin to open and we begin to see ourselves as we really are. And we begin to trust him with the very thing that we have that he wants us to give unto him. And that is our faith. Trusting him. Someone said this about faith. Faith is a conviction of, a, uh, of the truth of something. It's a, a conviction of belief. It's the conviction in your heart that says this is truth. There is no error in this truth. It is absolute truth. That's why when Paul wrote in Romans, he says, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's why when John says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's why when the Philippian jailer, when Paul and Silas was locked up and stripped naked and beaten and left there to die, they praised God and they witnessed to the power of God. And there, all of a sudden at midnight, they were released from the shackles and they were let out of that prison cell. And that Philippian jailer was ready to take his own life for failing at his only responsibility of keeping these prisoners prisoners. And God opened up the bars and he opened up the shackles and he let Paul and Silas out. And that jailer saw what had happened and he was amazed by what had happened. And Paul and Silas was telling him, don't do anything to yourself. And then that jailer says, what must I do to be saved? In other words, I've seen what God has done in your life. God is showing me that he can do it in my life. What must I do to be saved? And when you read that passage in Acts 16, 31, Paul and Silas looked at him and he says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And guess what? What happens in your life has the potential to happen in your whole family's life. Because that's the way God works. God works through people to reach people. But God does all the heavy lifting. All we are is just satisfied customers of Christ. We're not sanctified consumers. We're satisfied customers of Christ. And we flesh that out with our life. And all of the world today, all of human history, you can find one common trait that's woven all the way through history is that man always wants to get himself out of a mess. It was, it was man that took that leaf and covered up his private parts. And it was God that killed the innocent animal and made a skin. It was man in the Old Testament that worshipped at Baal and worshipped at all kind of other gods and offered their children. It was man that did all these things to try to show God, I mean this, God. 
And it was God that said, listen, I'm going to show you what I mean. I'm going to give my son for you. And my son is enough. All the heavy lifting, I'll do it. All you got to do is trust and believe. And put your confidence in me. A couple of things I want to say quickly is this. Number one is that what salvation is and what salvation is not. Let me tell you what salvation is not. Salvation is not from works so that anybody can boast. It's not of works. That's what Ephesians 2, 9, 2, 8, 9 says. Not of works lest any man should boast. By grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works. Why? Because if we did it, we're going to brag about it. We can't stop taking selfies. In fact, the number one picture taken in the world today is a selfie. Everything about our life is what we have done for ourselves. But when it comes to salvation, it's what God has done for us. We're not saved by works so that anyone can go through this life boasting. What is salvation? Salvation is simply nothing more, nothing less than a gift from God. You think about a gift from God. God gives the gift. I mean, God is the one giving. He's the one that's purchased it. He's the one that's offered it. He's the one that's giving it. God gives us the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's a gift from God. You know, in the mid-70s was a weird time in American history. Probably some of the best years looking back. But in our small town of Columbus, Mississippi, we had a, we had a Woolco, we had a Gibson's, we had a Sears. And I remember going to Sears in the mid-70s and there on display was, uh, was stereos. I wanted a stereo more than life itself. And I, I remember asking Daddy, it was Christmas time, and asking Mom and Daddy, I said, please, Mom and Daddy, just let me get this stereo. And they said, well, we'll finance it. You'll have to make the payments on it, and we'll give it to you for Christmas. So I was, I was thumbing through the other day, and I found a picture of my loudness stereo set. It's at the top up there. It was $187 plus tax, which was only about 4% back then. So it was less than $192, $3. But I paid Mama and Daddy Sears bill for that thing. It was $25 a month for 12 months. And I got it for Christmas, but I had to pay for it. Can I tell you, this is the gift world we live in, right? I thought this was the greatest Christmas gift I ever bought for myself. <laughs> but it wasn't a gift because I paid for it. It wasn't a gift because I had to earn the money to get it. See, salvation is a gift. And God has purchased it. It's the gift of God. It's God's gift. Think about it. As a sinner, we, 
by ourselves, we lack the ability to believe. By ourselves, uh, um, we lack the desire even to believe. By ourselves, we are depraved and we don't even want to believe. By ourselves, we are destitute and lost. That's why when Jesus looked at those sheep without a shepherd, he felt compassion on them because he knows that the only way they will ever change is that the holy presence of God is going to have to grip that heart. Only God can change their heart. And yet, when Jesus said, the Father is the one who sent me. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him to me and I will raise that person up on that last day. He said, Jesus said, nobody can come to me apart from me because the Father has got to do all the heavy lifting. And when God does it, he does it forever. That's why when that passage in the latter part of Ephesians 2 says, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and the members of God's very household. In other words, man, we're no longer outcasts because of Jesus. We're no longer excluded. Jesus has included us. He says that, that we're built up on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The whole body being built, put together by him grows into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. You also are being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. God is building us up. And God is doing something that only God can do. See, the fact of the matter is that the church, the church itself, the church is not here for ourselves. The body of Christ is not here just for ourselves. The church is here for those that are not a part of the body of Christ. The church is here for those that are the hurting and the, and the depressed and the discouraged and the left out and the unwanted. The church exists for them. They, actually, the church exists for the whole world. And the church is not a steeple. The church is a lot of different people from all different walks and all different makeups and all different shades of darkness in their life. But one common thing is that they have been redeemed by Jesus. That he's redeemed us. And he's called us out of that darkness so that we can be a part of his plan. We exist as a body of Christ not to make the gospel truth acceptable. I can't make it acceptable. There are more people, I look back over these all these years of, of following after Christ, I can tell you odds are, it's, it's unbelievable the percentage. Very very, very, very small percentage of people have ever responded to Jesus. Probably 90% of people, or 95 or 99 maybe percent of people I've ever told the story of Jesus to had just flat out rejected it. Not, not going to do it. Like it, just like it is. Leave me the heck alone. I'm walking my own life. 
You're not going to tell me how to live. You know, you, you know, you fill in all the blanks. And I doctored it up. But just imagine the numbers of people. Our job is not to make the gospel acceptable. Our job is to make the gospel available. So that people can hear. And so people can say no. And then a few percent along the way. Yes. God did something in my heart. God broke my heart over something in my life. And preacher, I don't even know how to begin to tell you this. But God started working in me and my heart was changed. God, God showed me things about my life that I'd never dreamed existed. God opened my heart and God opened my eyes to my sin. And I believe. And guess what? It was Jesus that did all the heavy lifting. And all he's called us to is to make the message of the gospel available. I read an article in one of Kent Hughes' books, and um, he told a story about Blondine. He was a French acrobat that was born in, 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 uh, in France in 1824. But he was a peculiar guy. I mean, he walked, I forget how many miles total he walked on a tightrope, 1,100 feet long at Niagara Falls. He was, that was his deal. He loved walking tightropes. I mean, he was so good at it that people, thousands and thousands, in fact, he drew a crowd and they estimated 100,000 people one time and watched Blondine walk across that tightrope, 1,100 feet in Niagara Falls. He would do it blindfolded. He did it, did it on stilts. He did it. He, did, he would push a wheelbarrow loaded with bricks one time. He got all the way out at the middle and he took a little pan and had all that stuff attached to him and set him up a table while out there in the, in the, over the Niagara Falls, 1,100 feet out, about 550 feet of that. He got halfway stopped, cooked himself an omelet, ate breakfast, and finished his walk. And people, woo, look at that crazy man do that crazy thing. And, and then lo and behold, he had, a, he had a guy that was his manager. His first name was Harry. He said, Harry, we're going to do something that's going to amaze these people. Get on my back. And Harry said, what are we going to do? He said, we're going to walk across this rope together. And you're not going to do anything. You can't do anything, Harry. You can't. If I start leaning, you lean with me. You don't try to balance nothing. You just stay on my back. And we're going to walk all the way across this rope together. Sure enough, he grabbed a hold. I mean, Harry was just a small man, 5'5", 135. And he's holding a balance stick of 40 pounds. And he's got his manager on his back. And he's walking across that rope. He gets all the way to the other side. And when he gets to the other side of that place, everybody's applauding. And Harry gets off and changes his pants and, and all of that. And, and you, know, you, know, you know what's happening. Harry, uh, Blondine looks around. And he said, do y'all believe what you've just seen? Oh, yes, we can't believe we've seen it. And Blondine looked at another man. He said, I'll tell you what, sir, I'm going back across. 
get on my back and you can ride with me. And that man said, oh, no. I would never do that. And I, and I never do it. I cannot do it. And, and, and Blondine walked across, but that man did not join him. You know, when Ken Hughes told that story, he told it like this. He said that, that that's where real faith and fake faith comes in. Jesus ain't Blondine, right? Jesus never drops his kids. We don't fail when we follow Jesus. He's not going to get us out there over the Niagara and push us off the road. We put our confidence in Jesus. We should not put our confidence in Blondine. Or put our confidence in man. And Ken Hughes said, this is why. Because there is the me factor. Ken Hughes says, the me factor is this. What if I just lose it myself and I fall? That's when we put our confidence in ourselves. Then he says, there is the chance factor. What if it's not enough and I need more? And then there is the Blondine factor. What if he fails? He's never failed before, but what if this one time I get on his back, he falls? And he falls to our death. And Ken Hughes in that book wrote, made that powerful illustration. And he says, we are to believe with all of our heart in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Because Jesus Christ will never fail. Never fail. We failed him. You failed him. But he doesn't fail his children. That's why we are in him. We become the dwelling place of God. Because God wants to do something so amazing in our life that only, only, only God can get the credit for it. Only God. Let's pray. Perhaps today you feel like you're on that tightrope of life and it's just all around you is distractions and you don't know if you're going to be able to make it. You're afraid to trust completely. You're afraid of what it might cost you. And can I just let you know right up front, it's going to cost you everything in your life to follow Jesus. Everything. Jesus Christ is not just a savior of a marriage. He's not just a savior of an addiction. He's the savior of a life. It will cost everything in your life to follow Jesus. Every day of your life.
Maybe this morning, what you've heard, what you've experienced, what God has opened your heart to today is to call you to a place of absolute and total surrender to Him. Maybe recognizing today that all around you there are people that, that need to hear the story and Maybe you're the first time they hear that story. Maybe you're the hundredth time. Maybe there's going to be another hundred times that will come later. And maybe on that 200th time they believe, but yet they need to hear your story. And we make the message of Jesus available. And we tell the story. And we tell the story of how that Jesus came to us in our darkness, in our sin. And he rescued us from the darkness. So for these next few moments, as Nathan leads us in invitation, would you just let this be that moment that you say, God, what would you have me to do today?